Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Pop and Schlock podcast. I hope you are all in as good a mood as I am this morning. I would like to take this opportunity to congratulate the 2021 Houston Astros on last night's American League Championship victory over the Boston Red Sox and wish them good luck as they head to the World Series for the third time in five years. To all the haters and salty hoes, please die mad about it. Moving back to Pop and Schlock, this episode we dive down a Criterion Collection rabbit hole and examine Kronos, the debut film from Guillermo del Toro that presents an interesting spin on the vampire story and gives us an all-time Ron Perlman performance. Lots to discuss this episode, so I'll wrap things up by reminding everybody who hasn't already to like, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your platform of choice, whether that be iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And also, please follow our social media on Twitter and Instagram, at PopSchlockPod. Thank you so much for listening. Now, here's episode number seven, Kronos. All right, let's try this one more goddamn time. Second episode of talking about Psycho Goreman. Keskesay. <laughs> honestly, honestly, though, um, I was hoping, like, so whenever we were deciding what we were going to talk about this week, I want you to know that I agonized. I went through the entire listening, the entire listing of the Criterion channel, trying to find something that we could watch that interested me that started with the letter P. Because for the last several weeks, Every episode we've done has started with the letter P, beginning with pig. So I was hoping to keep that streak going, but I broke it because I wanted to visit a film that I've been meaning to watch for years now and finally found an excuse. So this week, we're breaking the tradition of covering P films. That's films that... <laughs> that's, 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 that's films that start with the letter P. <laughs> knowledge we have not reviewed anything that would have ended up in the steel dossier but um we're not not covering a film that starts with the letter p this week instead we jumped into the criterion collection That's that's high praise, but oh god, yeah. This week we decided to jump into the Criterion Collection, and we looked at uh, Guillermo, uh, Guillermo del Toro's breakthrough film Chronos from 1993. And oh, I am so glad that we sat down to watch this movie. I've I've been me- I've been meaning to check this one out for a long time. I picked up the Guillermo del Toro collection from Criterion uh, whenever they did their last Barnes and Noble half off sale. I picked up that and. Um, 
Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. And I was meaning to do a Guillermo del Toro marathon at some point, but I just, uh, I haven't had the time. And so now the the time has come and I was, I'm glad that we chose this because I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I think I, I sent a message to you where I said, it's so nice whenever you go back and you watch the first film of a director that you've come to admire and every hallmark of their career that you've seen over the decades that they've been building their work, every little, uh, little Piccadillo and thing that they are drawn to across the span of their career to see it in its Genesis and on full display in their debut film is, it's something to behold. And Kronos is such, it, on a, I said on a scale of one to 10, on a scale of one to Guillermo del Toro, this is an 11. Uh, yep. So I, I'm really, really glad that we got to, uh, that we got to cover this one. So this is a movie where if, if you sat me down without telling me who directed it, you'd be like, who directed this marathon? I was like, this is such a del Toro movie. Like this, it would have, you just know right off the bat, it's a Del Toro movie. There's like all the hallmarks are there. His, uh, his viewing everything through the lens of, um, the differences between youth and age, uh, the, the clockwork gears, uh, Ron fricking Perlman, all of it's there. Bugs. Bugs. The man, the man has, uh, the man has some fascinations and, uh, religious iconography. Yes. And I, I, you know, I'll, I'll start the discussion by saying that while I greatly enjoyed this film, it's, it's very much the film of a, of a filmmaker finding their feet. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with budget constraints. This is a film that was made with, uh, with government backing and with university funds, I believe, uh, from uh, the University of Guadalajara. Um, so we have a young filmmaker getting his feet wet and really... Uh, exploring what interests him in his realm of storytelling. Yeah, and, but I was, you know, the thing is, even if it's a, a debut movie, it's extremely accomplished in terms of storytelling, pacing, character. We Something that I talked about on my Twitter today was that for the, with the exception of The Green Knight, every movie that we have reviewed ever since we did, see, we're on season four now, Yep, season four. Every movie for season four has been under two hours. And with the exception of Kate, all of these have been in the hour and a half range. Sometimes it's like an hour and 35, something like that. But it's still in that, it's still around the hour and a half. Uh, and this is no exception. But I think this really just shows that a movie doesn't have to be huge and long to have to tell a really damn good story. This had really great stakes in that they were all very personal versus something world shattering. He was able to really keep the settings to a minimum, the amount of characters to a minimum. And it was to the movie's strength. I think it didn't go. We, we didn't have too many tangents about backstories and filling in everything. What we didn't, what we weren't told, we were very much able to fill in the blanks ourselves. Yeah, and I, I appreciated that, and I, I do love that we're in this sort of little bubble of watching films that are really great little exercises that explain how good the concept of economic, you know, economy of storytelling can be. At the, the same time, hate, which is racist. <laughs> yeah, and at the same time, uh, I'm going to be completely honest. A lot of these I'm choosing because I can watch them on my lunch break, <laughs> but, but it's it's working out well. It's uh, it's uh. 
done wonders for this podcast because we've been able to find really interesting films that yeah. uh, allow us to have good discussions. And well, this one... And something that I was thinking about today is the fact that because we're not focusing on movies that are currently out, we have a much wider range of what we can look at and choose from. Especially because the last iteration of this pod, you know, of this show, we were on the radio doing first run movies and going to a movie theater every every week, but now that there's a pandemic, people are not going to the theater as often and there's a lot of places are moving toward streaming and and theater release on the same day. I don't think that that film release will necessarily look the same as it did during the last iteration of this podcast and therefore looking into, you know, more a wider range of movies on streaming services. You know, I, I like that we can, that's a thing we can do now because we're not as constrained by the formula that we set for ourselves. Yeah. And it's, you know, looking back on it, our back catalog of the KPFT days, um, this, this is a podcast that's archived forever. And so, you know, time is a flat circle. And so who, who, know, who knows when people are going to discover these particular episodes. So trying to hit something whenever it's in the middle of the zeitgeist, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it'll probably get us listeners in the moment. And we appreciate all of those listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. But at the same yeah. time, I also like to cover things that are maybe a little bit outside of people's comfort zone or their usual sphere of influence. And if we can drive somebody to you know, rent a film or check out a film that they otherwise wouldn't have. I consider that to be a success. And I really hope that after this episode, somebody goes, you know, I liked the other films I've seen from Del Toro. And this sounds interesting. I'm going to check this one out because every recommendation that I've had for this film has put, it, it put me on the path to watching it. It's just, there was that little kick that I needed to push me over the edge. And I'm really glad that that kick happened because this is one of those films that, now I feel like I have a more complete understanding of who Del Toro is as a filmmaker, and it makes me so much more excited for Nightmare Alley, which comes out later this year. I'm I'm just always excited for Del Toro, but not every Del Toro necessarily lands with me. But even like like Crimson Peak never, Crimson Peak was kind of like to me what Psycho Gorman was for you, where I was like, I appreciate this immensely, but it's not landing for me, and I can't really pinpoint why. I feel like that uh, is the re that is every review I read of Crimson Peak. And Oh, I know some people who loved it. I know a lot of people who love 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 it, and I love that they love it. Uh it's it's definitely a gorgeous movie. Like there's nothing wrong with it. It's just there's something wrong with me. <laughs> and speaking of uh speaking of Del Toro uh after this episode goes up, I'm going to try to dig into the archives and find the episode that me and my drunk wife did covering uh, Shape of Water, which was an all-timer. Uh, I feel like Guillermo del Toro is one of those directors who, no matter what he does, whether it 100% lands or not, it's definitely always a catalyst for a good conversation. And even, even with something like Kronos, which is obviously, it's, it's such, it's, it's baby del Toro. It's, it's, He's so coming into his own. There's still so much to talk about. What do you want to start with talking about? Because it's there's a lot we can say. I I personally adored its very interesting creative take on vampirism. Yes, let's let's start with that because it's it is 
it's funny because if you look at it, I, I tried to dive into some of the supplementals that the Criterion channel uh, gave alongside uh, the release of the film. And there were some interviews with Del Toro and Ron Perlman, and there were some essays that were up there as well. Um, and I, I just love the take on vampirism that's printed, that's presented here. Um, it's very much a, this is very much a, it can be taken as a straightforward horror film. Um, and the, it gets into some really good body horror stuff towards the last third. Yeah. Cause it then it's re- kind of like, it ends up being all like a hybrid zombie and, and vampire movie. And that's what makes it so interesting is the that it's horror. not, it's not a stereotypical look at vampires. And I, and again, uh, Del Toro would go back to that well again when he directed Blade 2. Um, doing something different with the idea of vampirism and trying to take things in a new direction. But the the take here, uh, mingling it again with his fixation on uh, on insects was really, really an interesting take. Mm-hmm. And, not, and not something that you see a whole lot because usually whenever people play in the vampire sandbox, the reason that they play in that sandbox is because they're very interested by the traditional tropes and they want to play around with them. And I feel like Del Toro did that here, but in a very, uh, I don't want to say subversive, but a very inventive way. Yeah. Well, one, one, one major thing that stands out as a difference is that vampirism is not contagious or spread. Yes, that was, that was an interesting, that was an interesting take. And that's, Honestly, it facilitates the drama of the story mm-hmm. in in that it's it's contained in that way. Um, and one of the things that I also that I noted was um, Del Toro had sort of explained that this film, his take on vampirism was also meant to be sort of a commentary on the idea of uh, feeding addiction, uh, which you can definitely see in the way that uh, Jesus has a uh, pathological need to be uh to utilize the Kronos device that essentially gives him this uh, pseudo vampirism that he's afflicted with. I mean, I wouldn't even call it pseudo vampirism. It is vampirism. It's just a different take on it. It's a very creative take. It's a, it's a creative take in that the, the thirst, the, the quint, the thirst for blood is handled in a very sort of interesting way in that it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to drive him to violence until we get to that last third, whenever he's starting to sort of rebel against the, those urges that he's having. Um, but it's, it's such a, it's such an interesting take and the way that uh, the way that Jesus is presented throughout the course of his, uh, his affliction, it's, it's, it's not like anything that you see in a traditional vampire film because he's going against those, established tropes in a way that I hadn't seen in well quite some time to be perfectly honest. Yeah. No, I, I, it, it was extremely inventive. I loved it. Um, Del Toro, please make every movie. <laughs> and I would, I would honestly not be upset if Del Toro went back and uh, tried to revisit vampirism as a genre at this point in his career, because he's, you know, he, he started off, with this sort of inventive take. And then uh, in the early 2000s, you had Blade 2. I'd like to see him come back to it at this point in his career and see the evolution, where he where he stands now on that idea and what he could do with those same genre tropes now as an evolved and uh, more mature filmmaker. Because the, the one thing that I will say about Kronos is that uh, he is 
very much a developing filmmaker here and that the way that it's presented looks uh, it, it's not as developed as his later films, because one thing I will say is that uh, Guillermo del Toro over the years has developed a very, a very um, distinct aesthetic style that follows across his entire uh, catalog of works. Um, but the budget here was so constrained that you could see that he was working with what he was able to work with. Right. So, and I was going to say some of that wasn't that he was necessarily like didn't have the vision. I just think he had the, the lower budget, but you give him something like a Hellboy budget. Right. Tell him, go nuts, bro, or a Pacific Rim br- budget. Look at what he can do with that. Exactly. I, and it's it's one of those things where, you know, we, we think about low budget now. Whenever whenever they talk about low budget now, they're like, oh, it's a $15 million movie. This is a film that was made for roughly the equivalent of $2 million American dollars in 1992. So to look at how it how it's presented and how well it turned out is astounding. Um, I you c- see, and I, I don't think low budget should be used as a term of derision. Uh, and it, I think no, that, I, that creative, I, no, and, and we're, I know that you and I are in agreement on that. What, sure. what would, what would be a, I, I, I'll tell you just kind of diverging slightly. What would be a great double feature would be to watch this back to back with El Mariachi because both of them oh, are, both of them are, uh, Spanish language films by, if not first time filmmakers, uh, filmmakers very early in their development who are working with a shoestring budget and basically showcasing the hallmarks of what will be their entire career right up front. So it's interesting that you mention, um, what's it called? Um, El Mariachi is your first, uh, I would have actually put from dusk till dawn as the, uh, as the, the the companion, and that would be that would be another one. Uh, if you just if you just want to go thematically, uh, that could be that could be thrown in there, um, and I I I, I appreciate uh, any any well, sort I mean, of it's int- still it's still, um, it's still Robert Rodriguez. Yeah, it's still Robert Rodriguez, it's still Robert and Rodriguez, but I still I just I like the idea of thematically. And I also like that uh, From Dust Till Dawn had an interesting, uh, an interesting take on on vampirism as well. Right. Just in, ter- was... just in terms of setting, um, right. And and also the the tonal shift uh, whenever you hit that second half and the vampirism becomes a part of the storyline. I, I right. really really I greatly enjoy From Dust Till Dawn. Oh, I love it too. And see, that was that was what I thought of is that it is also extremely inventive. Uh, I love that that they the source of the vampirism was being was the fact that they desecrated an Aztec temple by building a bar on top of it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and I, I love uh, the idea of just taking expectations for what vampires quote unquote are and the origins of vampires and all that lore and flipping it on its head and doing unexpected things with it. I think that's why I love what we do in the shadows so much to be perfectly honest. Um, Just the, the the building of the lore and just the, the different things that they do with it. Um, I know I'm kind of in the minority. Uh, A lot of people have been very derisive towards this season of the television adaptation, but I love what they're doing with uh, the way they're presenting the vampiric council this season and uh, just the playing around with the different lore and background um, the like Colin Robinson's obsession with where do energy vampires come from and 
I think that vampires have been around as a concept for so, so long. And so much has been done with them that everything that everything and anything that you can do with that particular, uh, I don't want to say character, that particular trope or that particular archetype or that particular story genre, there is, there are no rules. So whenever you break the rules, you're not breaking the rules because there aren't any, if that makes any sense. Right. Um, I was thinking of another, another like really interesting, innovative vampire movie and is also on Criterion Collection is Only Lovers Left Alive as well. It's another great one. Which I still have not seen, to be perfectly honest. I, I want to, but haven't I haven't had access to it. But now that I have Criterion Channel, I'll probably yeah, check it it's out. it's on Criterion. So, but I mean, I, I still like traditional vampire movies like Nosferatu, uh, both the original from the 1920s as well as Werner Herzog's. Um, you know, it's Which not that both I'm, of those are on Shudder. No, oh, I I love both. Uh, if you that's a that's extremely traditional vampire movie. It's not that I'm against it. I just really enjoy when people play with these genres and hit the mark. Chronos hit the mark. Uh, I do think that uh, what we do in the shadows hit the mark. Only lovers left alive hits the mark. Uh, From dusk till dawn hits the mark. Like and from dusk till dawn is a little more traditional, just in that it's it's still presented as. Um, communicable right and and that the vampires are are very bestial uh but it's still got a really nice twist to it yeah and it's i mean so many people got up in arms about the changes that were made to uh traditional vampire tropes whenever stephanie meyer wrote twilight but who really cares what's being desecrated you 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 do something different, and if it works and it connects with people, then I think it's completely valid. Honestly, sparkling vampires was the least of the things wrong with with Twilight. Like, I, I will absolutely commend Stephanie Meyer for trying something different and trying something new with the genre. It's just she had to bog it down with really creepy pedophile incest kind of stuff. And, and Yeah. And, uh, what's it called? Oh, good lord, the racism. So, I mean, yeah. that's the stuff that's actually wrong with it. Some of the, the relationship dynamics and glorification of stalking. But, like, that, I mean, but, A, a lot of the glorification of stalking is still kind of part of the genre. Yeah, so I mean, that, that, all, not, I mean that, that, goes, that goes back to Dracula, you know? Yeah, um, well, that's, I'm, not, that's, I'm not jazzed about it, but I will say that that is, that is something that is more of a concern than yeah. sparkly it's, vampire sparkly I, vampire is a cool idea yeah and i it's I, I mean i've written my own vampire novel and i my my perception of it whenever i started sitting down to write i'm like okay what do i understand about vampires um i just i took the tropes that i knew and that I accepted. And I was like, I'm going to play in this sandbox. I'm going to play to expectations. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring other genre features that you wouldn't normally necessarily see in a traditional vampire narrative, and I'm going to link them. So that's, that's, that's the way that I look at it, is if you are going to tell a vampire story, whatever you do with your quote-unquote vampires, whatever... Uh, rules you establish for your vampires as long as long as they make internally as long as they make internal sense within the setting that you have established as a writer then I'm going yeah. to take it at face value and what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to evaluate the story on its own merits and so if you look at Chronos 
the 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 rules and the internal logic is set and at no point does it go against its own internal logic so if you're on board with what the movie is presenting then it does it shouldn't break the immersion for the audience in any way shape or form and for me it didn't no i no again i i loved this movie i thought it, i thought that um one of the interesting takes too was just that like the MacGuffin device was the source of the vampirism. And I liked the twist, well, not the twist, but I liked the playing with the fact that the man who was looking for eternal life, as Ron Perlman points out, why you don't do anything to warrant even wanting eternal life. I thought that was an interesting, and you know, we don't get any real answers, but we don't need answers. Sometimes people just want to live for the sake of living yeah, I, I feel like the I feel like the the irony was the point that someone who has nothing to live for technically is seeking eternal life, um, and so 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 yeah, that's Guillermo del Toro knew exactly what he was doing when he was writing this script. It's not over. It is not over. It is not over Excuse me, not overdeveloped in any way, shape, or form. It's not what I would call simple, but it's very efficient. Yeah, and, and what I, like I said, what I like about it too is he knew he knew the budget that he had, and so he kept the stakes within that budget. It is a small personal movie with personal stakes. It's not this uh, Jesus Greece is not going off to protect the world from vampires. He's not saving anyone really other than himself, because he doesn't need to save it. No one's really in peril other than himself. His wife is away from the action for most of the time until the very, very end. His granddaughter inserts herself into the action at the very end, but is is able to really escape before she's in any serious danger and she can protect herself. It's uh, what I love about it is that it, it keeps, and, and that's something that we've been work that we've been also not only just smaller movies, but smaller personal stakes. Pig was like that. Mm -hmm. um, Kate for all its flaws was like that. I don't think we've really watched anything that has had giant world world implying stakes other than something like Shang-Chi, which we haven't covered. Right. Um, but I like that. I think shorter movies are good for shorter stakes and smaller stakes. It makes it seem more personal. Well, I think that one of the things that I love about films like this, where you do have more small scale personal stakes it's easier for me as an audience member to get invested in those stakes because I am closer to those characters because the scope doesn't allow me to get invested in anything beyond those characters. So as I watched what Jesus was going through and as I grew empathetic to his relationship with his granddaughter, um, I was intrigued to see how the story would play out. It, I got hooked in the narrative because of the way I empathized with the characters because the scope was such that that was all there was really for me to care about. Right. Uh, I didn't get bogged down in all the minutiae or... And I didn't get easily distracted by uh, what, what in larger scale films would be considered window dressing. So I think that's the beauty of small scale films like this yeah. is that... It, they're, they're so utilitarian that what is important is so readily on display that it's hard to miss what the filmmaker is hoping that you'll take away from it. Right. And it, it, um, what was I going to say? What Jake, what was I going to say? You, you can read my mind. Um, 
please I'm not like, pull out what, what I was trying to say from my head. I'm um, not entirely sure where your brain was going. None. No, it was dang it. I'm gonna I'm gonna remember. You'll what remember I you'll to remember say. about halfway through our next tangent. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Oh no, um, I'll remember I'll remember halfway through the next episode and be like, this is what I wanted to say about Kronos. Yeah. But I I, I mean oh, there's I remember I remember what I was gonna say actually right now is that the smaller stakes also means that while we have lore, it doesn't get so bogged down in lore that lore becomes a burden more so than an enhancement that 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 expands the story and makes it interesting. Sometimes right. I feel like lore can be so large and so extensive and so bloated that it it does it leaves actually very little room to kind of explore where the story could go. So I liked that it was, it, uh, you know what I'm talking about here. Yeah, it, I, I get you. I get you. And yeah. he, the, the thing, the thing that uh, really, you know, speaks to me is lore is something that Guillermo del Toro does really, really well, that world mm-hmm. building. Right. Uh, and it doesn't matter if he's like adapting lore, like he did with Hellboy uh, and working in all these little, uh, just these little bits of the backstory of Hellboy that were taken from various Mike, Mike Mignola comics that didn't really affect the overall story, but helped to establish the world building. And then you have the, like the world building that he did in something like Pacific Rim, which also like established so much and the story doesn't work without it. Uh, Guillermo del Toro is very, very good at picking and choosing what is important to establish the world that he's working in, in that particular narrative. Absolutely. And, so there were things, and I think it's not, you know, it's not for nothing that, you know, you mentioned him adapting Hellboy. It's not for nothing that him and Mike Mignola are friends. Mike Mignola uh, provided the artwork for the Kronos Criterion cover, as well as the, the artwork for the Devil's Backbone. And yes. it, it makes a lot of sense because they both have uh, very, I, I, you know what, a good way to, to, to summarize both of their, their creative worldviews is curious. They both really, really, really celebrate curiosity, I think, in their work, which makes perfect sense for why they make such great collaborators. True. And I I would love to see them uh, collaborate again, because it's, it's such a, that is such a good melding of creative vision. Mm -hmm. They're they're just on such the same wavelength that, it just makes sense. And I don't know if we'll ever see that happen again. I'm so super bummed that we never got a conclusion to the Hellboy trilogy and that we got that abomination of a reboot instead. Um, which if you it had some cool moments, not very many. And if you're interested in hearing our full thoughts on that, I believe the episode is available to listen on our archive. Just take a look for that one. We'll we'll also have science expert Ryan Terry on next week uh, for the Dune episode. We we can just ask him directly because, you know... He was in it. He was in it. Yeah, it's a running joke uh, for those of you who are new. Science expert Ryan Terry is a dead ringer for David Harbour, except maybe about 10 years younger. Uh, to the point where he has actually been mistaken for David Harbour. Yeah, so... In public several times. So um, whenever you hear us talking about a David Harbour movie and then say, talk about science expert Ryan Terry, he he's not literally in it, but he is in it. Well, Disney could save themselves a couple of million dollars if they need to de-age 
David Harbour for a future Black Widow installment. They can just bring on Ryan. Like, that that would save them a couple of million dollars in CGI costs. I mean, Ryan Ryan is a trained actor. He doesn't really do it professionally, um, but he does know how to act. See, like, we're, we're just, we're doing Disney's homework for them, which I feel like, given their reach and scope and everything, I feel like we shouldn't be giving that away for free. We should put that behind a paywall. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, going back to Kronos, again, I said that this is something where all the hallmarks of what makes Guillermo del Toro uh, an amazing filmmaker and all the things that he's interested in are on full display here. And I feel like how much you'll enjoy this film really depends on, uh, number one, your tolerance for watching films that are on the lower end of the budget scale, um, and also how in tune you are with Guillermo del Toro's fixations. Um, but I will say this... Uh, this might be the youngest I've ever seen Ron Perlman on film. And he was already 42 when he made this film. I'm trying to think. So the first movie I ever saw Ron Perlman in was actually City of Lost Ch Okay, City of Lost Children was is a more recent movie, but not by much. Well, this was actually, as far as what I was able to ascertain by looking through his filmography, which is extensive... Um, this was Ron Perlman's first big uh, film role. Prior to this, he had been doing a lot of television work. He obviously was in the the Beauty and the Beast adaptation um, that ran for several years, and he had some bit parts on like Miami Vice and some other television shows. But he didn't have a whole lot of film roles before this. Yeah, he he had one, two, three, four. He had four, um, and he for the night. So, so his first movie was in 1981's Quest for Fire, uh, then 1984, 1986, 1992, and then 1993 is when Kronos came out, and 1995 was when City of Lost Children came out. So within two years of each other, but City of Lost Children was actually the first movie I ever saw him in. Yeah, and Ron Perlman is one of those actors who ultimately will go down as one of the best character actors of all time. Um, he's... I hate that phrase character actor every I mean an actor is an actor is an actor he should just go down as one of the best actors of his generation because he is astounding I do I use the term character actor not as a pejorative but as a label of something that I don't think that a lot of people can do well um that's fair the, I just I just feel like character actor not the way that you necessarily use it but like as a I just feel like like people sometimes use it to distinguish them from real actors. And I'm like, but it's the same. An actor is an actor is an actor. I mean, look I at agree. his work on Sons of Anarchy. That was not character acting work. As no, that was, that was, acting. so I mean. That was such heavy lifting that I'm, I mean. And I don't think his work on Beauty and the Beast was, was character acting either. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I. Uh, this is this is not a you thing, Jake. It's a it's just a um, my own little um, like verbal peccadillo. I think also right. myself being myself being a performer. An actor is an actor is an actor is an actor. I just I think more in terms of like whenever you need, and I'm just going to use air quotes here. Whenever you need that role filled, Ron Perlman is your guy. Ron Perlman can walk on to any set, take the role that you give him and just through sheer force of will 
turn it into something completely his own. And the way that he played uh, Angel in this film is just, it's just such sweet perfection. And I, well, I love... So, he's, a, he's very much a villain and a bad guy, but he's so damn charming. And you also feel for him because he's being kicked around by his uncle Dieter. Um, you know, you, you feel for him, even though he's a complete monster. And I just love that Guillermo knew how to play to Ron Perlman's strengths because as the, as the role was written, um, Angel was supposed to speak fluent Spanish, which uh, Ron Perlman could not do. So they changed the role to make him an expat. And the, the reasoning that they gave for his not so great and fluent Spanish is that he just hated being in Mexico. So his affectation and, the, and his delivery, all of it just rolled into one. It's yeah, so, and you know, you know, it's they, so Ron Perlman and it works. They never explicitly say that at all in the movie, but you can absolutely 100% tell how much he hates it because yeah. of how often, even though he completely understands Spanish, he speaks in English to most, you know, most of the time and doesn't reply. Like he understands it enough to be able to talk to people. He just doesn't use it. Uh, there's a lot of, um, it's subtle, but you know, you can tell he hates it. You can tell he's kind of just not really a fan of the culture and being there. Uh, it, it's, and it makes him even more villainous because he can't, he doesn't want to appreciate the experience of, of living in another country. And I, right. he doesn't want to appreciate that he has an experience to learn something. Um, you know, you may not love it, but it's a good, at least it's, it's something to learn about. And you're, you're absorbing elements of the world that you otherwise wouldn't get exposed to. Um, it makes him all the more villainous and none of this is ever explicitly stated, but it's so easy to read between the lines in, in his performance. That's what makes it brilliant. Yeah. He's he, and Every like every moment he's on scene on screen, he's absolutely captivating as as that character. And in the hands of a less uh, a less confident actor, some of the sillier aspects of the character, like his obsession with plastic surgery, may not have landed quite as well. So, and see, you... it was in, see what was interesting about the fact that they didn't. They didn't really explain the thing of the plastic surgery. It was so easy to come up with a very fitting reason as to why. I just feel like because he is doing grunt work for his uncle at multiple points in time, he's probably had his nose broken. And he just wants to go and he, ahead. And, and he did throughout the course of this film yeah, several exactly. times. So, and so it was really easy to kind of find that again, it made it so easy to read between the lines and figure it out versus having to spell it all out for us. Entirely. Uh, but also, you know, we talk about Ron Perlman here, but let's give a lot of great hands to, to uh, Frederico Lupi. Oh, yes. As Jesus like, Grease, because. Uh, so, so good. Oh, um, God. And, you know, we talk about so much of the time that we talk about physicality in this podcast. And I mean, this role is pure physicality as an old man. On top of this, right. I mean, he uh, was born in 1936. He was not a young man when this movie was made. No, and he is, uh, is to my knowledge, he is a legend of uh, Latin American film. Yeah, uh, he is. He's um, he's and Argentinian. He's a, 
Argentinian, yes. Uh, yeah. And he has appeared in all of Guillermo del Toro's Spanish language films. So uh, he's, if you look at this role, he did just absolutely stellar work. I was, I was glued to the screen. Um, the one scene that really stood out to me was uh, the morning whenever he shaves the mustache. Yes. The interaction that he had with his wife where he's uh, like, well, do you like it? I feel because it makes me feel younger. And just the, you can tell the way that he's channeling the use, the youthful exuberance mm-hmm. was just something to behold. Um, well, and I the way w- he, 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 you could see it when he was playing the older version of himself, hunched over and everything, moving slowly and shuffling. Uh, like, like, it's a very, it's an extremely demanding role. And talk about sticking the landing. I mean, we're, we t- started off here talking about Ron Perlman because this is, you know, Ron Perlman is so, like, entwined with Guillermo del Toro these days. But, but I, I do think that the star of this movie really is Fe- Federico Lupi. Uh, yeah, because if, of the amount of demands that were put on him for to make this so accomplished, his interactions with other people, like you could see, like juxtaposing the tenderness with which he cre- he approached his granddaughter Aurora, and then just the the really like, twisted, gnarly way that he has to interact with um, with both Angel and Dieter, uh, the 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 love and kindness toward his wife, uh, particularly at the end yes. of the movie where they're trying to see if he's been freed from the, the spell of the device or not. Uh, you know, there's the, he doesn't get a lot of scenes to, uh, together with his wife, probably only three total, but yeah. every single time they interact together, it's very arresting and affecting. You can, you can see the, um, there's an authenticity to it yeah. that that feels very, very lived in and very, very real. Um, there were there were times whenever I was watching uh, Lupi's work in this film where he reminded me quite a bit, um, not just in like, this was like just sort of a weird thing that I noticed. He kind of reminded me of Jonathan Price. Um, I, no, I thought the same thing. He, yeah. he and Jonathan Price have very similar movements. And I happen to, I happen to love Jonathan Price. I love Jonathan Price, one of my all one of my all time favorite actors, and I will go to bat for uh, his performance in Tomorrow Never Dies being one of my favorite James Bond villain performances. And I don't know how many people will back me up on that, but I, Jonathan Price is a, is a great actor. And um, again, physicality is something that cannot be understated, but also careful delivery is so so important in a film like this because. Obviously, um, you're working in the confines of, uh, of I don't even want to say necessarily the horror genre, but in sort of a, uh, a heightened supernatural uh, world where, you know, you have to take what's being presented to you in this story at face value. Like you have to be on board with the idea of this, uh, this device that's uh, sh- like housing a bug that uh, transfers vampirism like you have to be able to be on board with that and well it's not it's not even just a bug it's a it's from what i understand a scarab which right. traditionally has been attributed in multiple cultures most i mean it's it's most notably i think just given the way that we're taught in schools in the united states it's more it's it's associated with egypt predominantly in our minds but scarabs have a very long history of being seen as 
uh, very sacred, immortal, thoughtful, spiritual bugs. Right. And I like that uh, that uh, Dieter de la Guardia, um, basically, he doesn't fully explain that out or uh, like just or hand feed it to the audience. But the idea of uh, bugs and insects having this interesting, fascinating quality that doesn't often get thought of. Right. Um, and I mean, and, and I will also say that there are multiple species of this is your science lesson for the, there's multiple species of, of scarab beetles that, that are endemic to Mexico. So it's, you know, it, it it's not just Egypt that has a, a, a respect for them. Right. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot here. There, there's so many layers to this film. And I think that's really why it works to have a film that is this condensed and this, uh, this economical and storytelling to have this many layers is really what makes it work. Um, and so, so many of those layers are um, performance and staging, all of that. Um, like I said, the budget is, is minuscule, but at no point does it look like amateur hour. This is still as much as it is a filmmaker finding their footing. It is also a filmmaker who is going to go on to be one of the most singular visionary filmmakers of his generation. And yeah. that can't be understated. So I, I want to just bring up one of the, I'm, I'm not an expert on the traditional storytelling of Mexico, but I, I just wanted to kind of bring this up too, is that there is a story about a Mayan princess who falls in love with a uh, a man of much lower socioeconomic status, and um, a shaman turns her. Uh, I'm sorry, turns the man into an insect, and then gives it to the princess, who uh, who who like just adores this bug. She gives it jewels. And she keeps it close to her heart by keeping it on a golden necklace. So, I mean, I don't think this is necessarily the same thing, but you can definitely see the influence of Mexican, traditional Mexican stories. Right. And you can, you can see the Guillermo's love and appreciation for um, Latin American storytelling, uh, shines through in all of his, all of his films, not just yeah. the ones that are Spanish language. Um, but a, another great example is uh, Pan's Labyrinth, which mm -hmm. personally, if, if I had to gun to my head, say what is Guillermo del Toro's masterpiece, I would say Pan's Labyrinth is the finest bit of filmmaking he's ever done. Um, but I don't think that he ever would have, excuse me, he would have ever gotten to the point where he could make something like Pan's Labyrinth without going through the growing pains of doing something like Kronos, where he was feeling himself out, really I see, trying. I think a good way to put it is that Kronos is the proof of concept for Guillermo del Toro being Guillermo del Toro. Yes, that is a great way to put it. Um, th this was almost like a pilot episode for the directorial career of Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, but it's a hell of a, it's a hell of a debut. Oh yes, definitely. I mean, the um, man—the man is a legend for a reason, and this, this absolutely—I mean, I would say that for any any Del Toro fan, this is a this is an essential, not just yeah. because it's his first movie, but because it's a great movie. It's it's very accomplished. 
I think um, that for I think that for film lovers of any type, this is kind of an essential movie. Unless um, I will say this though, but given the given the amount of blood and the the subject matter and some of the visuals of the rotting flesh, that might not be to all film buffs. Um, yeah, like stomach, I can like, see that. I I mean, especially like I I honestly kind of had a hard time when he was on the the um the morgue and they were showing yeah the, the, okay the the, uh, the the undertaker scene was a little hard to stomach um it wasn't like a whole lot was actually shown but the idea of the um the part where he's prepping him for uh for yep. the funeral and sewing the lips shut um yep. which is a traditional um morticians it's something that morticians do and it's very matter of fact um but See, it's I, it's it's somewhat hard to watch even though it's not very graphic in its depiction it's implied uh it's it's still somewhat hard to watch i did find some of the gallows humor of the mortician scenes to be uh it 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 worked and it didn't the part that for some reason kind of absolutely slayed me was whenever he's uh preparing the crematorium and afterwards he just pulls a random banana out of his pocket which it's just such a little character moment for the mortician it's like oh he's it's I liked him. I liked his, his big mutton chops and I'm glad that he lived. I was afraid that like he would get jumped on the way yeah. out, but you know, that's the thing. Jesus didn't need to jump him because Jesus had no beef with him. Right. But I mean, this is, this is one of those films where going back to like, and I'd love to do an episode just on the idea of debut films of directors who went on to have uh, absolute storybook careers. Like you, you look back at the debut films of, I mean, just look at look at Spielberg. Look at what he started out with doing TV movies and then eventually making that leap and growing into uh, one of the most renowned directors of all time. Look at uh, a good example. Another good example uh, to pair with this one would be look at what Guillermo del Toro is doing here and look at what Quentin Tarantino did with Reservoir Dogs. And they're working almost on the same wavelength. The only difference is uh, the level of budget. And the, the amount of feet. And the, well, there, there weren't feet in Reservoir Dogs because there weren't any women. Oh, gotcha. You're right. And I mean, You're right. I mean, there's probably a director's cut somewhere where uh, Lawrence Tierney is putting his feet up on the desk, but I haven't seen it. Um, but that same level of you can see the genesis of what this person is going to be later on in their career, and I find it so fascinating. The ones who they know themselves in that way. Um, like I, like myself as a writer, I look back at the first book I ever wrote and I, if I were to go back and look at that manuscript now, I could probably pick out the things that would be my hallmarks. But at the same time, I hop from genre to genre because I still feel like I am finding myself as a writer and I am still exploring the things that make me, that interest me as a creative person, as a writer. So for Guillermo del Toro to come out of the gate swinging with, this is who I am, take it or leave it, it's it's inspiring and it's something that, this is a movie I will probably revisit down the line once I've had a chance to revisit some of Guillermo del Toro's other films. Oh, I... I mean, this will probably be on my Halloween rotation. Definitely. Um, like, I mean, he's got Nightmare Alley coming out later this year, which is, uh, it's an, not only is it an adaptation uh, of a novel, but it's also a remake. There was uh, an original version, I believe, in the 50s. So, 1947. Uh, 1947. I was close. I was close. Um, so. Oh, hey, Ron Perlman is in it. Of course Ron Perlman <laughs> is in it. Um, oh, Tim Blake Nelson. Love that guy. 
I love Tim Blake. Nelson. Oh, David Hewlett. Uh, David Hewlett. Uh, just a side note is in a very underrated and fun little movie called um, Nothing. That is by the same people who I believe made Cube. Oh, that's an interesting one. I'll have to track that one down. Yeah, well, he was also in Cube as well. Hmm. Uh, but nothing, nothing is a really fun little movie. And that's, if you talk about like a very small, small, a very small movie and a very personal movie, there's, there's, for the most part, there's really only like two characters. For almost That's... the entire time, it's a it's really fun. He's excellent in it. Um, he's also great in Cube, but I think he's best in nothing. Uh, Cube is an extremely interesting movie. Uh, I never saw Cube Two, Hypercube, or Cube Three. Let's Cube harder. Or I didn't. I can't tell if you're joking, and there is a Cube Three. Uh, no, there, I I want to say there are how many Cube I, movies I think are there, there? I think there's only two, aren't there? No. I thought after two, they were like, no. that's enough. No, there is Cube, which I have seen. Cube 2 Hypercube, which I have not seen. And Cube Zero, which is a prequel to Cube. Mm. And then there's also uh, a Japanese version uh, that's supposed to come out this year. And that's, yeah, there's also, so there's a Japanese remake. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad that occasionally I learn things on this podcast because it, these these tangents are pretty much the only thing that lead me down rabbit holes. Uh, yeah, I mean, we could we could do an entire, probably like an entire. I mean, like, we could do we could do a series of episodes just based off of oh hey did you know? Yeah, no, we could because, do a whole episode on like I feel like if we were ever to cover the cubes, <laughs> probably just do all the cubes at once. We could just, we could do cube month. We could do, um, we could do cube. We could do cube two. We could do cube zero. We could do anything starring ice cube. Just, just, I just just like saying cube two hypercube. Cube two hypercube is the kind of title that you think is a joke the same way that, um, they came up with the fake movie titles in Tropic Thunder or in Scott Pilgrim, but it's real. And that makes it so much better. Well, there's also, uh, what's it called? Needle in a Time Stack that's coming up. That's a what? Needle in a Time Stack is a movie that's coming up. And that um, that definitely stuck in my head. As it, and that's the thing. I, I don't know if it will or will not be a good movie, but it has a very memorable title. And I feel like memorable titles. Uh, uh, what was it? Because uh, Edge of Tomorrow was originally called Live, Die, Repeat. And I don't like the fact that they called it Edge of Tomorrow. I think Live, Die, Repeat is a much more eye-catching and interesting title. Well, they, they officially changed it when they released it on a home video to Edge of Tomorrow, Live, Die, Repeat. Why can't you just say Live, Die, Repeat? I feel like that's all I don't you know. need. It says, I don't know. But see, I like that more. I, I, like, I like interesting titles. So maybe Needle in a Time Stack will be a, a terrible movie, but but give it credit for doing something interesting and eye-catching with this title that makes people go, what? Yeah, I, f- I feel like you can't underestimate how important a good title is or an eye-catching title is. Um, I mean... Something like, if I see something like like Live, Die, Repeat, I would be much more interested than seeing Edge of Tomorrow because Edge of Tomorrow could be anything. Live, Die, Repeat tells you a Here's, lot about what live live die life. repeat is enough of an eye catcher and it, it's intriguing enough that it would get me to at least watch the trailer even if i didn't know what it was you you show me the titles edge of tomorrow i don't know how that's different from like the tomorrow war or 
any of these generic sci-fi titles that get thrown around. Well, you I'm know, gonna, you know what yeah, I mean? I'm going to think of it as like this big dramatic romance movie that ends in cancer. Ew, yeah, you're, that's you're not what, wrong. That's what that strikes me as. Like, I see this, I was like, oh, it's probably a cancer movie. Like, and I can't deal with that. Like, we, I, I was going to mention, like, not only the reason why I had such a hard time with the more with the, like the morgue scene had nothing to do with like the content so much as I've been to so many open casket wakes. Yeah. There's so many. And, and it's all, that'll do it people. to you. It's people that you abs that you love that you're seeing for them for the last time. And like, when you touch them, they feel very stiff, like statues and actually seeing then how they're, they come to feel so cold and, and stiff and why they look like that. It's just like, it's, it's not that it's disgusting to me. It's just depressing. And it's yeah, probably just the fact that just so many open casket wakes, my dude, so yeah. many open casket wakes. How many yeah, more I, must I? I'm at the, I'm at that point where if I know there's going to be an open casket wake or funeral, I just, I politely decline now. Uh, I think the last one that I went through, went through was for my grandfather and I just, I can't do it anymore. I'm just like, no, um, just there's, it's, it's, it's not for me. Um, it's for somebody else, but it's not for me. Um, I, I mean, I whatever, like whatever, whatever comfort or celebration I would have at a person's life is, is going to be completely diminished by the awkwardness of that situation. So yeah, no, no more open casket, anything for me. Uh, it's like whenever, uh, whenever my, whenever my parents passed away, we, I it was their wish that they would be cremated. And I am thankful every day for that, uh, for that decision. Um, and so we had a memorial service where there was a slideshow so that we didn't have to look at corpses and be in a room with corpses. And I got to, uh, I got to take their remains and scattered them into the ocean. It was a very emotional, personal yeah. experience for me. And I, I'm sorry that we don't live near a nicer ocean, mom and dad, but uh, the, the the terrible ocean near Galveston is next to the good ocean that you guys loved on your cruises. So I hope that like that brings you comfort. Um, but See, like, and I come from a, I come from a Catholic family, which I think is very, very, very safe to say that Catholicism is probably the most morbid of the Christian face, which means they're like, like, Hey, you want to see a dead body kid? Bring yeah. a stick and you can poke at it. You know, like that's, that's Catholicism <laughs> in a yeah. nutshell is it's you want to poke it with a stick. So, and you know, obviously Mexico being a very heavily Catholic, uh, faith, you know, heavily yeah. Catholic country, of course they're going to be showing. So, I mean, I'm not, it, it, I, there are so many more open casket wakes and funerals in my future. Um, because yeah, man, I, I, if I, Catholics just love their death. Oh boy, do Catholics love their death? That probably. Yeah, I, I, I think I think science every day that I'm not a Catholic. My my wife comes from from Catholicism, and she has taken me to several Catholic events and ceremonies. And most of the time, I'm just there confused. So I was not raised in and around Catholicism. Um, it's just most of my family is uh, non-denominational or Protestant. So we didn't, the ceremony of it was not something that I ever knew. And so I, but I have had to go to events with my wife, with her family and the, the Catholics, and I'm so out of the loop. So I went to 
one of these mass ceremonies that I was just completely detached from. And so at one point, what, what, kind, this, of, this, what kind of mass ceremony? I don't, was like I don't regular? remember. Was it a I don't remember. Mass? I think it, I think it was a, I think it was a first communion for somebody. Oh, and, oh yeah, those are massive, very long ceremonies. Yes. And, and at one point, this procession of, old men with capes and swords started oh, coming down. Yeah, the, Knights, I, the Knights of Columbus. Right, and I didn't know what this was, so I turned to my wife and I go, why are there Draculas in the church? <laughs> they and wouldn't she, be allowed in a church if there were Draculas. That's why I was confused. <laughs> but you because, know, because I may not know Catholicism, but I know my vampires, and Dracula <laughs> is not allowed in the church and there was a line of them and not only were they in the church but they were armed and i was very confused and so so yeah i just kind of like i i bow my head and i step away and i just admit that i will never understand catholicism because i don't know what uh what i, I like were there vampires in the bible i don't remember that particular psalm uh well remember the catholic bible has more books than the protestant bible Oh well, that that definitely would uh, uh, would explain some things. So, so there is a uh, a reference to the Aluka uh, in Proverbs, which could be translated as a bloodlust monster, but that's not necessarily. Um, it's not a literal not translation. Yeah, it's because the, the closest uh, translation across different languages. Yeah, and uh, it could also apply to a werewolf just as much so it's take it with a grain of salt there there's not there's not like a and i i want to uh, the people that are that are listening to this probably already know the bible wasn't written in english things get lost in translation and lost in time because the bible wasn't written in english no it was it was basically just um it was basically just Shakespeare sitting down with uh, with Rosetta Stone or Duolingo and going, hmm, how can I make this palatable to the people who are paying me? Let's let's make this palatable to Americans, even though America doesn't exist yet. Or it only that's barely how, exists. That's how forward-thinking Shakespeare was. Wow. He knew about America before it even formed. Let that be the next let that be the next Shakespeare uh, like conspiracy theory along with the there were multiple shakespeare's theory let's that uh well, shakespeare was clair, was clairvoyant and saw the american revolution coming well we also need to say too that um you know that other that other shakespeare was american because everything's amerocentric especially the bible like the bible was written specifically for americans in mind and it was in english and it was about capitalism and why you should shoot people and be mean to the gays mm-hmm that's that's the gospel truth right there. Um, I mean, I, I make these jokes. I've actually read the Bible, and it's got a lot of really awesome lessons in it. So I'm not really sure where a lot of these interpretations are coming from. Because I'm, I'm like, what, what you people are saying and what Jesus is saying, take the same thing. Yeah, I mean... We let's God. We could get into a uh, we yeah, could get we'd into probably, a two. We could get into a two-hour theological discussion if we wanted yeah, to, I mean, we which could, I think, which I think Guillermo del Toro would actually be okay with because he has a fascination with uh, with religious iconography and just right. the, the well, dogma that surrounds it. And 
not and, only that, but man's interpretation of those things. Well, yeah, and also, you know, not only do we get the Christian slash Catholic iconography in this, but we also get, again, with the, the reference to the scarab, a, a hearkening back to Mayan stories as well. I just love that melding of cross-culture influence because it makes well, for... You it say, makes for, Jake, you say quote-unquote cross-cultural influence, but the, there's only one reason why Catholicism ended up in Mexico and Tate because it was a cross-cultural experience. Los conquistadores. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of sort of forced on the indigenous people there. Let's be real. Well... What what wasn't forced on the indigenous people of the new continent? Pretty European imper- European imperialism, everybody. There is nothing that it didn't touch. Well, and remember, the uh, Mexican magical realism was a direct response to to colonialism. Yes. So, but I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say I, I wouldn't necessarily qualify del toro's movies as magic realism because there it's it's not that's not magic realism it has magic realist elements to it but what del toro creates is pure fantasy and pure horror and then and depending yeah. on the movie too it's also pure the, sci-fi the, the closest that he gets to magical realism is pan's labyrinth but right right i would, I would not call chronos magical realism at all i call no, it's it a vampire story and no, that's it's, a, awesome. it's a vampire story it's it feels to me more like a a modernist take on folklore than anything else and folklore to me having studied quite a bit of it at the university level um folklore is such the backbone of horror uh i was gonna say if you want to see a good uh a good example of uh, magical realism in Mexico and particularly Mexican cinema, like Water for Chocolate, I think is probably the, a better example of what magical realism is than versus. I'm not saying that there's not, there, there's obviously a um, an inspiration for magical realism in Del Toro's work for sure, but I think that that if you're going to slot it into a particular genre, I would say that he he makes fantasy, he makes horror, and he makes sci-fi uh, that it that has elements of the aesthetics of magic realism. Now, I, I also did not get a chance to read the essays that you did. So if Guillermo del Toro does say, hey, guess, guess what, everybody? I make magic realism. I'll be like, you know what? He knows his work better than I do. I'm just going to defer to del Toro on this one. Yeah. So, and, I, and the thing is, like we've said throughout this episode, Guillermo del Toro knows what he's about. Mm-hmm. Like, if if anyone wants to question Del Toro about Del Toro, he would be the per- he would be the one who knows better than anybody. Um, he has a very singular focus, and I appreciate that about him and his work. And I heartily recommend Kronos to anybody who considers themselves a film fan, a fan of Guillermo del Toro, a fan of horror, a fan of dark fantasy. Any of like if any of those tick your boxes, you need to be you need to watch this if you haven't already. And you know, it's dark fantasy, but there's so much humanity and heart to it that makes it work. Right. Um, and maybe that was that. Come to think of it, that might be why Crimson Peak didn't land as much with me because there because it was so cold. Because it was so cold. It was so cold. Yeah, it was very cold and very detached, um, which is a 
which is a feature of most gothic literature in but my it's opinion not, but it's not a it's i don't think that it's something that works with del toro because no del i don't toro I, don't, is, I don't think it fit del toro's aesthetic sensibilities to a t but his narrative storytelling sensibilities clashed with that type of story yeah i i don't think that it worked because because what makes del toro so good is the sense of warmth even even while jesus is turning into a monster there is still so much love for his granddaughter as, and his wife as well to the point and he loves them so much that that the, the uh, aurora his granddaughter is what 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 prevents him from wanting to give in to the monster side of himself and right. his when when he when his wife at the very very end his wife is still by his bedside waiting out the night with him to see if he's free from the curse. She would not have done that if there wasn't love and warmth between them. Even when they had been fighting and, and, and having problems earlier because she didn't like that he was locked in the bathroom. Uh, right. She was annoyed that, that he was gone during the new year. It wasn't like they were on the brink of divorce. They were just having a bit of a, a, and mo you know, they were just having some some moments of not connecting the way that any long-term couple will have but it didn't mean that they didn't love each other any less and and i i love that and that's that's what i'm saying is that that's uh, the, there's also the heart of the family in pan's labyrinth uh, i was in, just going to say the same thing even yeah. something that is uh that really scrapes the bottom of darkness like Pan's Labyrinth. There is light and warmth there that comes through in Del Toro's sensibilities. And I mean, I look at Hellboy. There yeah. if like, Hellboy, one of the things that I love about it is how uh how tender some of the humanity that he injected into those characters came across. Um the interactions specifically between Hellboy and Abe are the ones that really get me. And then, oh God! In the second movie, when they're drinking and singing together, yes, God, I love those movies. I really do. Hellboy, Hellboy Two: The Golden Army is such an underrated entry into like the grand scheme of comic book films. It doesn't get the love that it deserves. I think it's probably because the first one just it, it stuck the landing so much that they were kind of expecting, I guess, something even bigger versus something that's just as good but in a different way. I, yeah, I absolutely love both of those films. Guillermo del Toro, the films that he's directed, um, I can't think of any that didn't resonate with me on some level. Crimson Peak is obviously probably the my least favorite. If I had to, you know, gun to my head, I'd say that's probably his weakest entry. Yeah, and but, again, it, it's because of that, it's the coldness. There wasn't much in the way of any real humanity there. Uh, yeah, I think you know, I think and you and you can see and you can see how he ping ponged and was like went and swung the pendulum in the other direction for Shape of Water. Oh, absolutely. Which is if you you know you make all the jokes you want about you know it's a movie about fish fucking, but it is a also a tender love story that, about fish fucking. Yeah, and it's set in a it's sold it's set in a cold time period with cold aesthetics but there's a warmth to it and that is what makes Guillermo del Toro such an interesting filmmaker to me is what he is able to bring to stories that otherwise wouldn't be able to translate that kind of tone and there's our favorite word from this podcast again it's tone 
Guillermo del Toro. You, uh, you, he's he's got to be one of those directors that um, he has to be brought up in a conversation for just masters of consistent tone, not just in a single film, but across his entire filmography. He has a consistency of tone, and I can appreciate that as as an audience member. He just has a consistency. Period. Even yes. even when he's doing some, even when he's doing. Uh, basically a mecha movie in in uh, Pacific Rim Pacific Rim he still wears his influences on his sleeve uh, you know exactly who is making this it doesn't have the same aesthetic but it has the same sensibilities and same ideas and I think that uh, you his uh, his consistent sense of humor also can't be understated because if you look at the humor in Hellboy and Pacific Rim and the moments of levity that you see in Kronos there is there's a through line there and it's definitely something worth noting oh yeah and a lot of the moments of levity were courtesy of uh of Ron Perlman just being so sick of this shit yeah I mean his character Angel being sick of this shit not not him being sick of the shit as an actor, he's clearly having the time. Bro, he's of having, his the, life. he's having the time of his life I during know this that, thing. I know that him and and Del Toro are are bros till the end. Yeah. So yeah, I I mean, long story short, at the end of the day, this is definitely a movie that any that any self respecting film fan needs to watch because. I feel like you great you gain a greater appreciation for one of the best directors of their generation by watching this. I don't I feel like I really, he's, the, he's one of the best of all time. I don't like to make those qualifications. Okay. But one of the best of all time as all time currently exists now. He's definitely one. He's definitely in the top tier of working directors right now. Like without it, without question. But I feel like I, I liked his work before I, before I saw this film, but now I have a greater appreciation for who he is and what he brings to the table. So if you're somebody who's looking to have a complete understanding of a particular filmmaker, this is essential viewing. I think this is something that I kind of want to bring up too. Uh, it was a conversation that was had on Twitter, I believe recently. And my apologies to whomever started it. Uh, I didn't, I didn't really make a note of it because I didn't really think it was ever going to come up in this, in this podcast, but now it is. Um, Del Toro is interesting. And I would put him up there with the Wachowskis as being a director who is not ashamed that animation is one of his biggest influences. But then you have somebody like uh, Darren Aronofsky who will take full blown scenes from Satoshi Khan and be like, no, I, this, I'm not, no, this is, this is purely my vision. I'm not influenced by this animated movie. No, what are you talking about? Uh, I, I'm glad that he is not ashamed of things that influence him. And it's, yeah. for, I think that makes it for the better. I feel like it's one of those things where with, uh, with particular filmmakers, whenever they are aware of and embrace their influences and aren't ashamed of them and are willing to talk about those influences and what shaped their career, it gives them better clarity for what they, they are trying to accomplish with their career. Um, like one of the things that I appreciate about Quentin Tarantino is that the stuff that he watched as a kid that he so, so is obsessed with, he doesn't downplay it as being like, Oh, this silly stuff I watched as a kid. 
it's stuff that greatly influenced his career and he pays homage to it and he lovingly recreates it in his films. And I feel like more filmmakers could benefit from that sort of thing. Well, of yeah. not. Ne- and like I said, I've kind of lost a lot of respect for Aronofsky as much as I've liked his work just because of knowing how much he did swipe from Satoshi Khan and then just dismisses his work outright. Satoshi Khan is incredible. Uh, some of his stuff is on Criterion, actually. But um, you, even if it's not on Criterion, he's still great stuff. But you shouldn't be ashamed of that. I, I would have much more respect for him if he said, yeah, the, this inspired me. I, I love this guy's work versus just... I also just things. love. I also just love hearing directors and writers who I admire, talk about the things that inspired them because that's what starts rabbit holes for me. You know, as like, that's how I discover it. I mean, to put it, uh, to put it in a, a way that's a little bit relatable. Um, so many of my new favorite bands were opening bands for my previous favorite bands. It's, it's a yeah. wormhole. I, you, you just, you know, I, I watched Monsieur Hulot's holiday uh, because Terry Jones talked about what a big influence it was on some of his really funny, uh, like silent movie style Monty Python sketches. I love, and I love Terry Jones. Terry Jones actually did some audio, or I'm sorry, he did some video essays for the release of Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. Would not have known about it had he not just been, and that that's part of why I was such a big fan of Terry Jones was of how enthusiastic he was about the things that influenced him. I mean, the fact that he and Michael Palin both went on to become documentarians to share the things that they love, um, you know, that says a lot. And I, I wouldn't have found or discovered Richard Linklater if it weren't for the fact that Kevin Smith was talking about how much of an influence his films had on the creation of Clerks. So it's, I, I feel like people need to be open and honest about what it is that drives them to be creative. It's, it's, we should not be ashamed of the things that uh, that drive our creative impulses. And I feel like so many directors, for some reason, keep that close to their chest. Um, and I don't know why. I can't explain that. And I can't. I don't want to put words in their mouth. But it's it's a feeling that I have that I, I want to know the things that I love. I want to know what inspired the things that oh, I love. You know what? I was actually very wrong about about. Aronofsky uh he did apparently do like a documentary about about Khan Hmm. but that still doesn't change the fact that like he did rip off a lot of stuff from him yeah and Uh, without without necessarily uh oh in an interview with Satoshi uh, with Khan in 2001 he said that any scene in Requiem for a Dream that seemed to be influenced by Perfect Blue is an homage to it. Um, oh, okay. Black Swan has a lot of similarity to Perfect Blue, including some shot-by-shot stuff, but Aronofsky then went and denied that there was an influence there. So it's kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth. He did yeah. say, oh yeah, he's such a big influence, but then made almost a, like a, not a, not a remake, but made a movie that was very 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 heavily influenced to the point where there's a lot of almost shot by shot similarities and then says oh no this was totally original yeah well, and i feel i feel like there's a yeah there's a big difference between like so in cribbing, my mind yeah yeah there's a big difference between cribbing and homaging so in my 
my mind, even if he does say, oh yeah, totally, totally inspired. Look at, look at how it influenced, um, what's it called? Uh, Requiem for a Dream. But, th- but then go on and say, oh, but it had nothing to do with Black Swan, which is so, it has so much in common with Perfect Blue down to similar shots. Don't do that. Just say I was influenced by Khan in this movie too. Like, yeah. what's, where's the shame in that? I think to I think to wrap things up, the best thing that we can say is that all of us could stand to be a little bit more like Guillermo del Toro, yeah. in more in more ways than one, creatively, ethically, personally. Uh, Guillermo just seems like one of those people who has uh, affected the world for the better through his creative outputs, and uh, I'm really glad that we had a chance to visit this film. Um, Next, apparently, apparently he he told um, Mana Ashida from Pacific Rim. A, a very little girl who plays Mako Mori uh, as a as a tiny child. Uh, she had a difficult time pronouncing Del Toro, so he said, "Just call me Totoro." Yes, I, I've heard that story, and it's so that's just a, cute. That's just so perfect. And he he apparently like it, it was an internet story, but he confirmed that it was real, uh, and I love that. And I, uh, I mean, Guillermo Del Toro probably is a human Totoro. Yeah, I could I could buy that. That is so, probably a, that that's a that's a movie we should totally cover in this. I love Miyazaki. Oh yeah, definitely. But next week, uh, get ready because it is the exact opposite of what we've been doing for the last several weeks. You want to talk economy of storytelling? That goes right out the window when we cover the new uh, Denis Villeneuve adaptation of Dune, which uh, I saw last night and it just melted my eyeballs. So. Get ready for that next week. Uh, uh, that's gonna be that's gonna be an intense episode. Yeah, I'm seeing I'm seeing it on Sunday. I have my ticket. It's gonna be an interesting episode because if I recall, uh, your wife Tori will be joining us. Correct. Uh, frequent guest, uh, science expert Ryan Terry will be joining us because it is his birthday coming up. So it's his birthday present. Is he gets to talk about Dune because he is a giant fanboy of Dune. I am going to be the token person who has not read the book because I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. I probably could power through it within the next couple of days, but I don't want to because I have other things to do. when When I reread it last year, it took me the better part of two months to work my way through it because I wanted to digest everything. I would not recommend a speed read of Dune. It's it is a dense bit of literature. I, but I thought I had a longer time. To, I thought it was going to be one of those like big Christmas movies. No, no, they uh, it 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 hit in the uh, in the middle of in the middle of October. Um, I think they released it whenever they thought, okay, this is the only breathing room we have as far as uh, giving it some time to not have much competition because December is a is a slaughterhouse of uh, of tentpole movies because we're going to get matrix four we're going to get spider-man it's uh it's there's going to be a lot of competition so uh perfect time to release dune and we're going to be talking about that next week uh i'm i'm going to go ahead and wrap things up i've got to get up early tomorrow i do have a show downtown i'm going to be on commentary for russell rave ghouls night out i might actually be doing commentary in costume haven't decided yet but we're going to figure that out um I want to thank everybody for tuning in and we will see you again next week. Thank you, everybody.